BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. to get to on the show. I love coming in on a Monday because we've got everything from the weekend. We've got some great ideas that we've been kind of thinking about. Everything from should BC maybe step away from the World Cup, that 2026 uh, event of the year that I have been a big proponent of. Like, full disclosure, I want the World Cup games in Vancouver, but a report coming out from Bob Mackin saying today in excess of a billion it's a B now. No more millions. A billion dollars is what it could cost um, all of us to have these Canadian dates here north of the border for this World Cup. That's a big dollar with a lot of things going on in the city in this province. Can we justify bringing the world to Vancouver for a handful of soccer games or football games to those who call it by that? Should there be a maximum temperature that has to be set in rental homes. We're going to be talking with Jerry Mayer Judson. She's a show contributor. Um, we're going to talk about the fact that right now, uh, we, we know that we've got to keep this temperature at a, a place where people aren't getting affected, seniors aren't getting affected, but can we get that done? So should there actually be legislation put in place where there should be a maximum temperature be set in all rental homes, and can that even be done? We'll talk about that before everything is said and done. But first... I'd like to get into the healthcare sector. The healthcare sector over the last couple of months has obviously been a focal point. A couple of months ago, we were talking about the nurses and trying to get something out of the minister, the province, and the government in general. And finally, Adrian Dix came to the forefront and uh, basically said, listen, we're going to fix this and we're going to focus on the nurse-patient ratio as well. With respect to nursing workload standards, we will be implementing in British Columbia, and we will be the first in Canada to do so, uh, nurse-to-patient ratios in our public health care system. This is the leading international practice in terms of retention of nurses and the delivery of quality health care. We will be implementing a standard minimum ratio model to reduce nursing workloads, increase staff safety, improve nurse retention, and improve access to safe, quality nursing services, and improve patient care. And we will be backing that up with significant financial support. Okay, so that's coming from the health minister, Adrian Dix. And we're talking like ratios of one to one. And we're talking two to one. And even for just general care, five to one, which is a little bit of a stretch, you know, five patients for every one nurse. But even then, that's uh, what the commitment was. So this past weekend, and you know me, if I've ever filled in on any show, you know I just bear it all. There's no things to hide. I'm just going to come forward and tell you what it was. So anyways, this past weekend, I had to deal with some kidney stones. And boy, let me tell you something. This guy in his late 40s, few things hurt more than trying to pass a couple of those bad boys. But that was the situation that I was in, and I efforted my way to the hospital, and I got there. Now, I'm not going to get into the particulars of me, 
But just as I was going through the process, there were a couple of things that I noticed because you never do, as I said to Jill, you never truly take off your news cap. It's just, it's what you do. And a few things that I noticed while I was waiting in the hallway in my bed, I didn't get a room and that's fine. I'm not one of those people that needs to be coddled while in a hospital. As long as I have some place to rest my head or just kind of, you know, get some reprieve, I'm fine with it. Send to the nurse as she was running around, just rampant. You constantly hear these beeps and dings and clings and all these things going on in a hospital because the nurses need it over there and then over there, upstairs, downstairs. I mean, they're just constantly running around. And I said, you know, just out of curiosity, how many beds are you in charge of right now? She said 10. I said 10. I said the ratio. is. I said I work in news. I said that, that I don't think it's supposed to be that much. She goes, no, it's supposed to be like five, six. I said, well, why are you doing 10? And she goes, well, I'm doing 10 now. I was actually doing a few more a little bit earlier. I said, oh, she says, well, we're just so understaffed. And so I said, well, what does that look like? And and this is a real conversation in real time. And I'm not going to rat out the nurse by saying this. And I said, well, what does that mean? She goes, if one person calls in sick, it affects everything. And I said, you're that close to the margin where if one person calls in sick, the trickle-down effect affects everybody. And she said, yeah, and she walked me through it. And I said, boy, I sure hope that this Adrian Dick's promise comes to fruition a little bit sooner because you could tell she was burnt out. But that was just the first of three things. Here's the one that jarred me the most. So I go in for this procedure. I am the, they've identified the fact that I've got some kidney stones. They said, buddy, those are too big to pass. We're going to have to give you some surgery. I was so grateful that they were able to turn me. That was a good news story is the fact that I was able to get in and have the surgery pretty doggone quick. They were so understaffed at this hospital that as I was waiting to go in for my surgery, they have you in the holding room before they cart you down and into the OR. My surgeon and her crew... We're using the mops and the buckets to clean the OR, to flip the OR from the previous surgery before I went in for mine. It was as if I was at a restaurant watching a waiter and a busboy flip a table so that they could get through the early service and get into the evening service. But this isn't a restaurant. This is an operating room in a lower mainland hospital as I'm waiting to get surgery. My surgeon was cleaning the floors of the OR because, say it with me, everybody, they were understaffed. It blew my mind. And then as I opened my eyes after the general anesthetic and I came to and I was, you know, just getting ready for my recovery about an hour and a half before they finally let me go, I said to my nurse, I said, you know, you're you're yawning. This is true. This is all real fact stories. I said, man, you look tired, which is not something you often say. She was in the midst of a 24-hour shift. 24. Why? Because they were understaffed. Somebody called in sick in that department as well, and she picked up the shift. So she was just going to rattle through it, get some overtime, and she was going to head home and eventually sleep when she could. She got a you know couple of little naps here and there when things were a little down. But this is the state of what we're trying to fix right now when it comes to the healthcare system. I don't think I would have understood it unless I physically had seen it because you sit here in this high chair in the 21st floor of a building downtown and you read all the scripts and you do all the stuff you got to do. But when you're physically there and you're watching it with your own eyes, you realize how far we are from truly getting this to where it needs to be because I'm just one person. I zipped in, I zipped out. I was out in two days. 
But this is happening all throughout the Lower Mainland constantly because we are understaffed, because that commitment, quote unquote, that looked good when they were in front of the podium talking about it, hasn't come to be. So what do we do to fix this? I've brought you the problem on the other side of the break. I would love to hear your solutions as I offer up mine as well. Let's talk, shall we? We're talking about the healthcare system and sharing a story of my challenges within a hospital this past weekend. And I wouldn't say there were challenges. I got treated and treated well, but man, there's so much pressure being put on these nurses right now and physicians and uh, support staff. And I just, when I saw it with my own eyes, I was really, really taken aback because I was the guy on here a couple of weeks ago talking about the fact that Adrian Dick stepped forward with this big plan to fix some of it. Now I know it's not going to get happened over, uh, it's not going to get solved overnight, implemented immediately, but man, I didn't realize they were this far behind the eight ball. Let's go to the phones. Thank you for the full boards. Diane, we'll start with you. Diane, your thoughts on the system right now. Yes. Well, my husband has been in a lower mainland hospital for a little over five weeks And unless you're there to see what's happening, you do not know. He has been highly infectious, huge wounds that had to be dressed every day, took two nurses to dress these wounds. Sometimes there wasn't two available, so my daughter had to help. She is not being vaccinated. Would it not have been better to have a nurse who has not been vaccinated help out? These unvaccinated nurses and staff people should be back in the hospitals now. This is ridiculous. We're the only province in Canada who is not allowing unvaccinated medical people in the hospitals. But our whole family unvaccinated, we can be there. And if we hadn't been there, he probably would have starved to death. Diana, thank you for the call. You know, this was a, it's always been a sensitive topic because the vax, the unvaxed, it used to be such a polarizing discussion, but I think you do have to have this conversation at this point. And it's not because all the other provinces are doing it and we aren't. It's because now we're looking at numbers and we're looking at hard facts. And Diane brings up a fair point here. All right, and I'm not going to go down one side of this or the other, but I will say that if your whole family can go into the hospital unvaxxed and the, you know, the, the people around you are unvaxxed, but yet the doctor himself or herself has to be vaccinated, it is worth at least the conversation and the discussion. And again, I know that that's a super sensitive topic, but I'm open to that conversation if you want to have it on this show today. To Surrey we go. Anthony, thank you for your patience. Your thoughts? Oh, first of all, thanks for taking my call. Uh, A quick thing. Uh, I went through the kidney stone thing about 10 years ago, so knowing where you're coming from, good to hear. Thank you. Things worked out for you. (laughs) Um, In in short form, uh, the system's broken, period. And it's pretty obvious by no matter what uh, side everybody's saying that if you've gone through this, uh, the system's broken. And my answer is uh, a simple one. We need to vote in a new government. Uh, And I'm not saying, you know, I, I hate, quick government changes all the time. I don't think that's stability. But uh, the one that's been here for quite a while now isn't doing their job. And there's uh, multiple reasons for that. But, you know, my answer is, well, let's vote in a new government and see if they can do the job right. Okay, Anthony, I appreciate it. Here's my thoughts on that. And you bring up a really good point. The problem that you face here is, A, you're understaffed. So now you got to go out and you got to find these nurses and doctors and support staff. You've got to be competitive with your wages. You've got to have a place for them to live. You've got to have them want to come to your hospital and help you as well. It's a, it's a buyer's market because, to be honest with you, BC isn't as, I guess you would say, desired as maybe it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. So the problem is, is this is not a nearsighted problem. This you could have projected because you've got an older populace. 
You've got, uh, I would even say, hospitals that can't even take on what's coming their way with all of the growing numbers when it comes to the population. And then on top of that, between the retirements, those who didn't want to get the vaccination so they couldn't come back and practice, all of the other things, it's the perfect storm. But now that you're on the other side of that storm, quote unquote, you're so far behind that the nurses and physicians and support staff that are there I just don't know how they can stay positive, how they can stay motivated, knowing how long it's going to take for the Calvary to come. That was what I got this weekend, is yes, they've heard the promises. Yes, they know what's been put out in press releases. But that Calvary isn't there to help them. It's on the other side of the mountains. It's months away, if not years away. And that, to me, was one of the jarring things that I found out this weekend. Mike in White Rock, good afternoon. Your thoughts on the health care and what can we do to fix it? Well, the, the first caller kind of stole a bit of my thunder, but the bottom line is I think we would all agree our system is broken. You can have offline conversations with medical professionals, and they will all tell you, if you are dying, we have one of the best healthcare systems in the world. If you need preventative maintenance, our system is sadly, sadly broken. That being said, it's a very simple thing to start the process. This won't fix it, but it'll at least start it. Like the first caller said, and I'll expand on it, go to every one of the healthcare workers that you let go, not you personally, but the ones that we let go because they didn't have, quote, the jab. That's done. It's over with. Everybody's moved past it except BC. So let's do that. Let's go to every one of them. Let's get all their back wages that they've lost. Give it to them as a signing bonus and say, please come back. They will be back within 30 days. Now we're back to pre-pandemic levels of healthcare professionals. Okay, Mike, thank you for the call. I'm going to try to squeeze in Robin from Vancouver. Robin, you're my final call to this segment. You've heard a little bit of everything. What would you bring to the table to try and fix our healthcare system? Good afternoon. Well, I don't know what I could bring, but of all these problems like health, welfare, and children and family and all this, it's... If all these problems were happening under a free enterprise government, listen to the NDP scream their heads off about that. Yeah, that's fair. So we call that a mic drop where I'm from, by the way. <laughs> Got in, had what he said, and he wanted a piece out. Um, again, I, I'll probably circle back on this in the 4 o'clock hour, if not for sure in the 5 o'clock hour. But here's the one thing that I want you to take away from this segment. It can be fixed. It can be fixed, but it's got to take more than just the obligatory podium every once in a couple of months from the government to step up and say, here's what we've got. Here's the vision. We need action. I think that's fair to say, right? Whether it's, and it's not just healthcare. I mean, it's everything that we're talking about when it comes to our groceries, when it comes to where we live. I mean, BC right now, I can't remember the last time where everything has just felt this chaotic. Like, it makes for great radio, doesn't it? But the reality is, is when it comes to healthcare, this matters because healthcare affects everybody. And in order for us to have good, effective, efficient healthcare, you've got to have staff that are ready to rock. And I walked into a hotel, uh, pardon me, I wish it was a hotel. I walked into a hospital this weekend where my surgeon cleaned the floors with a mop and broom herself before she did my procedure. Because they were that understaffed. Ain't that something? BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. You know, we always talk about uh, educating our kids on health and on how they can eat better so that they, you know, avoid some of the perils that maybe we faced as kids when we were younger but you know what sometimes education is the hardest part because you don't want to be that nagging dad or mom saying ah you got to do this or this is what i used to eat every once in a while it's great to have something cool where your kids can actually learn get educated and at the same time better themselves yes it can happen and super chef's cookery for kids is celebrating their 15th year of of supporting the surrey community with expert food tips and at the same time are premiering a new TV pilot in the process. To talk about all of this, he is the boss, the, the guy that started it all. Greg Chain, the doctor, stopping by. Greg, how are you this afternoon? Oh, just wonderful. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you doing this because I know the timeline and you guys are about to roll up the sleeves and get down to business. But why don't you explain it in your words, why you got involved in this and what benefits you think you're going to be able to bring to the community? Well, you know, my grandmother and my mother always taught our neighbors Chinese cooking. And so it kind of inspired me to do that. And uh, so I've been cooking for a long time. And when I finished my dental degree, I decided to do a little bit more cooking. But my dental patients, some of them had really not great teeth. And it wasn't because they didn't brush, not only because of that, but mainly because they didn't know what to eat. The kids didn't really understand how much sugar affected them. So I said, ah, I should use my cooking uh, experience and my dental knowledge and create a program to teach kids about cooking and nutrition and sports. And that's how it all started. 15 years ago. (laughs) I was going to say 15 years, you've been able to accomplish a lot. And I was looking at some of the people that have thrown their support behind you. Uh, Everybody from world champion skater Patrick Chan to Hall of Fame Canadian uh, Football League coach Wally Buono. I mean, this is a pretty impressive collection of people that are saying we believe in what you're doing. Yes. Well, we've been blessed with um, people. And it's funny, you know, sometimes I'll call I call people from Yale at the start and from Harvard, and I would just leave a message from Dr. Chang, and they would recall, return my call and said, is this about a patient? I said, no, it's about a program I wanted to start for kids about cooking and nutrition and having fun in the kitchen. And they said, what can we do to help you? So we've got people from the White House, uh, White House chef Bill Yassis, who has uh, worked with Michelle Obama, 
we've got um, people like uh, uh, people from NASA who's, who are in charge of uh, space education. And so we've incorporated their, their knowledge and just a lot of people involved with um, and interested in child health. I think one of the things that I was, uh, you know, as I was reading through and trying to educate myself a bit that really struck me was how many children you've been able to connect with. I mean, over 6,000 children and families, and that's before you even go online. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a great uh, a partnership with um, our Surrey School District, which is the largest school district in British Columbia. And uh, federal funding helps me to hire all these university students who are really uh, passionate about teaching kids uh, nutrition and good health. And so basically I put the partnerships together with some of the community partners and some funding from federally and, and through the municipal government. And um, they basically, you know, run the program. So it's great experience for them and it's great for the kids. The kids that we we welcome into the camps are 8 to 12 years old because they're just a perfect age. They, they have the ability to cook and they have the enthusiasm and they listen. So it's just <laughs> a great age group. To, uh, to, to incorporate. Dr. Chang, let me ask you about the rising cost of food because it's real easy to tell people what they have to eat and how to eat healthier. But at the end of the day, when I come to the till, sometimes I'm buying that cheaper thing that might have a few extra ingredients that I know I probably shouldn't eat, but it's what's going to help me get across the finish line when it comes to feeding my family. How do you balance that two worlds? Well, that's, that's what, you know, at Super Chefs, we always encourage the transfer of intergenerational family values through cooking so you know from a very early early start if you ate what your grandparents would eat and a lot of those kind of recipes are basic recipes and tonight i'll be sharing that with over 400 people what a just a general chinese dinner is and it's very inexpensive very cost effective but it's so wholesome and good and so that's what we try and encourage um, kids to you know, look into their families for basic, you know, family cooking recipes. And a lot of times it's just, you know, really home style, good cooking, and it can be done very cost effectively. And very quickly, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that there's um, a television element to this as well. Yes. Well, we've been working with Jan James from, uh, he's got seven Emmy Awards for his work with Sesame Street. And he's the one actually helped me launch Super Chef's 20 years ago. So um, he, he mentored a bunch of uh, stu- new grad film students that I hired and came up with this concept about, um, you know, Dr. Greg educating young kids. He's a dentist, so it's all come to life. <laughs> and we, you know, we threw in uh, Patrick Chan and uh, some other um, interesting puppets. And uh, so we're unveiling it tonight. So um, we're very excited. As you should be. I think it's a great initiative, and I know those kids in Surrey are going to be better for it. So, Dr. Chang, thank you for coming on and sharing some of your experience, and good luck this night. Thank you. And if anyone wants to watch the uh, pilot, you can go to our website, www.superchefs.org, and we'll have the uh, link on our website tonight. Wonderful. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Greg Chang, writer and founder of Super Chef's Cookery for Kids. They will be getting down to business in just a couple of hours. And like I said, there's Patrick Chan, Wally Buono, uh, Chef Giuseppe Cordovinas. He's a Canadian pizza champion. A lot of people coming from all different parts of the country to help take part in this event. 
You know, one of the things that I go back and forth on as a former sports radio guy is, do I want this event coming to my city or do I not want it? Because I know right now, with everything going on with gas and food and the cost of living and a thousand other things that we've already addressed on this show today, are we ready as a city to bring in something as big as the World Cup? Now, I remember all the detractors of the Olympic Games before we had the 2010 Olympiad. And I thought to myself, at the end of the Olympic Games, that will be something that people will remember Vancouver of for generations. And it was global. The world got to see Vancouver on the greatest stage of them all. And yes, it cost a pretty penny, but because of Van Ock, we were able to get pretty close to even, if not maybe even stole a few pennies away. But the World Cup of soccer is a bit of a different beast altogether because it's not just Vancouver's or Vancouver slash Whistler. We are just one of a handful of cities that connect Mexico to the United States right up here north of the 49th. And it is a big collaborative effort to put on the beautiful game. The challenge that we face right now as we head towards 2024, these games aren't even slated for 2026, but there's a lot of work to be done, is how much money should the taxpayers and citizens of this city, of this province, be put on when it comes to making sure we can absorb the expense of hosting a World Cup game or games? City of Seattle did something that the city of Vancouver and City Hall has yet to do, and that is release some of their numbers. Bob Mackin with the Breaker.News coming forward just the other day with some breakdowns of the numbers, and I think some of them are jarring. And the reason I'm bringing it up, I'm not bringing it up in the doom and gloom perspective, but more just information, just so that you understand right now, because FIFA wants a lot from their landlords. And I, I didn't really get into it. Like, sometimes you'll just hear the bulk number. And I'd love to hear from you this on the way. By the way, if you think we're in or out, we should or we shouldn't, 604-280-9898. That's 604-280-9898. If you've got a say on the World Cup and where we're at right now, should we be bringing this event to Vancouver? And again, buzz line 604-331-2899. So Lumen Field And Vancouver's BC Place, pretty much side-by-side when it comes to venues that will host World Cup in 2026. And again, one city's been a little more transparent than the other. 16 cities are going to be hosting this in total. And some of the things that I think we have to take into consideration are things like, well, for example, um, the security. Which is going to be close to $2 million per day. Per day, according to this report. And when you think of you've got security, you've got facility management, you've got cleaning and waste services, FIFA's not on the hook for any of it. And you only get to sell so many tickets and you only get so much of each ticket. The government said uh, a couple of months ago, I think it was January actually, that they were willing to put forward $230 million in costs. City Hall was planning to spend $73 million for security, $40 million for the venue, $20 million for the FIFA Fan Festival, another $15 million for the host city office, administration, and volunteer service, and $14 million for traffic and stadium zone management. There's a few other costs as well, but I know you're not driving around with a pad of paper and a pen. So translation, it's a nine-figure bill to host these games in this city. 
Now, if you're a soccer fan, it goes without saying, you want the World Cup here. It's the biggest tournament on earth, and could you imagine being able to see these games in your own backyard? It's a once-in-a-generation opportunity. So that is the glass half full, is we will never get a chance like this again, at least not in the foreseeable future. So these are the moments where you step back and say, you know what, sure, the price tag's going to be big, sure, the price tag's going to be onerous, but damn it, it's the World Cup and we've got to have these games because what a thing to be able to put on the old resume. But the timing of it is really interesting. And the timing of it for me right now is where I actually waver on this. Because... Are we past the point in overturn? No. But it's really hard right now as the price tag goes up on this, speaking of the 2026 World Cup, to justify the amount of money that is going to go into this. Now, here's what some will say. The four crowd, the thumbs up crowd is going to say, well, think of all the money that it's going to bring in. Think of all the tourism. Think of all the revenue, the small business that it's going to be able to help, the advertising opportunities, all of these things that's going to come into the city, not just to try and negate that cost, but maybe even put a couple of bucks uh, into the city, into the community and into small business. You can't argue that. Like that's a very four, uh, very four, quote unquote, point. But the con of this right now is the timing. There are so many families that are struggling. There are so many families right now that are trying to figure out how they're going to get from A to B. Is it the right time? Or will there ever be a right time to host a a, a world-class event like this again? Because it's kind of funny. People will say, well, you know, maybe Vancouver could do the Olympics again because we've got a lot of the infrastructure already in place and maybe we can actually make some money this time around. That's a fair argument. The World Cup... That's going to be a challenging one. It's becoming a tougher sell just because of where we are in the world right now. Like you think of a 100 plus million dollar price tag per game. I don't know. Like Ryan, you're you're a soccer fan through and through. You're a guy. and, And I think to myself, if I wanted to get the four in this argument, I would ask a soccer fan, would you want the World Cup? But let's be honest. Let's put all the pro football aside. Is it the right time for Vancouver to host the World Cup? Honestly, Rob, I think you kind of said it best there as well was like, is there really ever a right time in in 2010? Was it the right time for Vancouver to host the Olympics? I mean, you could argue yes, you could argue Mm -hmm. no. You know, with the way things are going right now, is there ever going to be a right time to host another big world event? And it, and like you said, this is a once-in-a-generation thing. And for me, again, a big soccer fan, like, of course, I, I want the World Cup here. I don't care if it's one game. I don't care if it's two games, three games. I don't even care if there's, you know, teams playing here that I honestly have no real attachment to. But I want to see it and because I'm probably never going to ever get the chance to maybe, you know, do, do that again ever in my life. What would you rather have, the World Cup or an extension on Highway 1? Uh, World Cup. That, you don't, that's, you don't that's drive easy. Highway 1. Not not particularly. <laughs> and then if I do, it's coming into the city. It's not really going out into the valley. So Yeah, it, it's interesting because you'll have this argument on one side or the other. I can see both points because, again, we're both sports fans. Oh, yeah. So would I love to go and see a World Cup game? Heck yeah. Am I going to be willing to pay Taylor Swift prices to go see it? Uh, it'd be close, but I know they're going to be hefty, but I, I would. I probably would because, again, it's the once-in-a-generation thing. But, man, the timing's tough. And the fact that right now the transparency of the NDP government is so, you know, 
sort of there, but not enough. I mean, seeing what they've done in Seattle where they released the numbers and said, yeah, this is what we're paying. I think it really holds the feet to the fire now on this side of the border to say, okay, what are the numbers that you're looking at as well? So hopefully we can get those in the next couple of days, because again, you got to remember, they're going to have to put in a natural grass pitch into that stadium as well. And that's not cheap to do either. Not at all, but again, you could argue that stadium probably should already have, you know, some natural grass in there with the Whitecaps having played there for, you know, X amount of years now. And and again, we always see that when, you know, European players do come over to North America to play in the MLS, they never end up playing in Vancouver because of the artificial turf. Yes, no messy. Well, we wouldn't have had to worry about that this year anyway, but uh, in the future. Okay, we'll take a break here. Let's open up the phones. I would love to hear from you. All right, let's do this. The World Cup, we've talked about it left, right, and center. But do you think that it's time that the city and the province reveal the numbers? We now know what the numbers are south of the border. Is it time for our government to finally step back and say, Vancouver, British Columbia, this is the price tag? By the way, um, Ron and Poco asked me, he goes, Rob, name one city in the last five World Cups that made a profit. Well, Qatar in 2022 made a record high. The tournament was the most profitable in FIFA's history. According to their numbers, $929 million U.S. was generated by FIFA in ticket sales and hospitality rights alone. So there you go. Just the most recent of World Cups uh, did big boy numbers, and that is uh, hopefully enough to wet your whistle, Ron, in Poco. All right, to the phones we go. Steve in Delta, you are first up. Uh, Your thoughts on the World Cup, and then would you like to know those numbers? Well, first off, I wouldn't believe the Qatar numbers for the life of me because those guys aren't really even a democratic country. So I highly doubt they made money. I think that's a probably a crock. I've never seen an Olympics or a soccer FIFA that's ever made money ever. So whatever their budget is now, double it, maybe triple it. And then, you know, that's what the loss will be. So, you know, Canada is a hockey nation. We're not a soccer nation. You know, we got the Whitecaps in Toronto, you know, messing around in this MLS. And I think it's just, you know, it's... It's something to glorify maybe the politicians in the city, but it's really not what we do, and I wouldn't put a penny for it, quite honestly. And I've been playing soccer all my life, and I, I love soccer, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't put a penny toward it. There's a hell of a lot of other things I could spend a billion dollars on. You know, and not waste it like that. Uh, Fair enough, Steve. Thank you for that. And I appreciate you at least admitting that you were a soccer uh, player so that we can get some perspective on that one. Adam in Langley, thank you for waiting. Your thoughts on the numbers and uh, would you bring it to Vancouver? Um, You know, I wouldn't bring it. uh, Same idea. Fiscally responsible. I've been in BC now for about four years and I joke around with my wife about how long it takes things like the TC1 to get built. Uh, sky trains, look at all the issues in the downtown east side, put that money towards the policing. There's so many other things that we could be spending our money towards building better communities and a better province. Soccer doesn't hit on that. I'm a sports fan, not a soccer fan, but I would say the same thing to the Olympics again or to any of that stuff. Opening the books is always good. Um, I think that transparency matters, uh, so I would definitely be supportive of that. All right. Thanks, Adam. Glenn, just before I get to you in Maple Ridge, one thing that I want to say in the midst of these phone calls is um, we have to remember something. This is a huge marketing opportunity for Vancouver City to put yourself on a world stage. You think of all the budget that we put towards marketing us, like when we go abroad and say, hey, by the way, look at us. 
This is one of those moments where this is uh, a real home run opportunity for Canada, for British Columbia, and in particular Vancouver to market yourself to the world. So let's not remember, you're not just taking money out of one pocket. There are a couple of different ways that you can look at this. This is maybe not good for those who want to see expansion on Highway 1 or, you know, immediate help in the healthcare sector, but it is, you know, in certain facets. And I just want you to keep perspective on this. It is a glorious opportunity in tourism and marketing and small business opportunity in the lower mainland. So let's just try to keep those perspectives. All right, to the ridge we go. Top Ridge, Glenn, thanks for waiting. Hey, Rob. Well, I, I'm going to change up my what I was going to originally get to say from your last comment. But first and foremost, honesty. Good luck with getting that from any politician in Canada. Other than maybe Brad <laughs> West, they're not opening the damn books for anybody. They're all liars and they're all, they're all, uh, they all have, they beat around the bush, they tell no stories. Um, I'm going to change it up a little bit because you said, yes, we're, it's a grand opportunity to open up the world to Vancouver again. Mm-hmm. You know what? Quite frankly, opening up the world twice now has uh, really actually made this the most expensive damn province city to live in in North America. We're talking gas taxes. We're talking rent. We're talking real estate prices. You name it. Hotel prices are we're number one in the most expensive hotels. Opening up the world has huge consequences because, oh, look at the mountains, look at the ocean, and uh, it becomes unaffordable for the people that grew up uh, and want to move here and just have a, a normal life and live. So careful what you wish for when you open up the world because when we open up Expo, uh, that's when this city got expensive after that. That's all right, Glenn. All. Thank you for that. Appreciate your thoughts. To the text we go, here we go with common sense again. Of course, we shouldn't host anything until we clean up our own house. It's embarrassing the mess that we're in. That's because we don't have the proper house keeping. That comes from Dave in New Westminster. Ah, you know, I'm so torn on this one because I understand the magnitude of having a World Cup game in this city. But man, I'll tell you what, I think it's the fear of the unknown right now. You know, it's kind of like when you, uh, what was it recently? I live out in Pitt Meadows, and there's a street called Harris Road. And if you've ever been out there, you know it. And initially what they wanted to do is there was these train tracks, and it holds everybody up. And so people are like, man, we've got to be able to go underneath the tracks. Well, let's build this little tunnel so that everybody can get moving. If you've ever traveled from Delta, you know what I'm talking about as well. So anyways, the first initial cost, I think, was like 25 or $30 million. Well, you wait a couple of years, a new government comes in, a different mayor, and all of a sudden you go back, and now it's like five times the price of what it was initially slated to be. And now nobody wants to touch it. So nothing's going to get done. Everybody's still going to bitch and moan about the fact that they can't get across the tracks, yada, yada, yada. But this is the problem. This is why you want to see the numbers so that you can at least say, okay, here's my starting point. Here's my you know stick at the ground so that I have a measuring stick, a barometer as to whether or not we should do this. The fear of the unknown for me is the biggest problem. Whether the games come here or not, it's almost secondary to the fact that I don't know what ingredients you're giving me in order to make this this dinner for you. It's 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 really hard to not know what those numbers are. So I really hope eventually uh, they do come out, even if it just comes down to what are we paying for facility? What are we getting? What is FIFA getting? It just seems like a lot of unknowns. And the only problem with this, as we go to a break, is we're two years away from the games itself. We need to know. And I think that's something that needs to be, that's a fair ask from a citizen of this, uh, you know, province to the government that probably at this point has the numbers and just isn't sharing them with us. Rob Faye in for jazz. Good afternoon. It's hot. (laughs) 
<laughs> this just in, breaking news, it's hot. Nah, you know what? The problem is, whether you go outside or inside, it's just hot everywhere. And it brings up the question that we've been talking about on the station today. Should a maximum temperature be set in rental homes? It's a great question. Jerry Mayor Judson. Nailed it. Show contributor. <laughs> I told her if she calls me Brad Fi today, I wouldn't care because I've just hacked her name all day. But when it counted, I yes, delivered. Yes, you nailed it. I was like, what? It's, it's okay. I have my, I'm used to my name being mispronounced and misspelled at all times. I've given up at Starbucks because it's G-E-R-I and I say Jerry and I'm just like, it's What's gonna... the worst Starbucks mishap you've ever had? Oh, with my name? Yeah. I think I just... I get a lot of J-E-R-R-Y that I've just kind of accepted because that's like the boy name. I did have a cute one time. It was J-E-R-R-I-E, like Mungo Jerry. I was like, yeah, sure. (laughs) That one's cute. I got robbed with two Bs once. Rob? Yeah. I thought it was a joke, but now they were serious. Incredible. Well, let's talk about this because this does affect a number of people. Walk me through this potential responsibility of a landlord. Totally. So um, just because, again, it's hot and it's been hot and we have that um, is mostly apropos of, you know, when it, when it gets hot like this, we're put in mind of the heat dome event in 2021 when, like, I mean, any people dying of heat-related illness in their home is too many, in my less than humble opinion. And so we're called, you know, we're trying to have changes. We're trying to have, you know, air conditioning in homes and funding for that. But um, Emily Rogers, and she's the director of operations at Together Against Poverty, was on the Jill Bennett show, and she can probably explain it better than I can. In uh, the city of Victoria and in the city of Vancouver and in, in multiple other municipalities around the province, we have what are called standard of property maintenance bylaws. And currently those bylaws uh, say that the uh, heating facilities in a rental unit should be capable of maintaining a minimum indoor temperature of um, at least 21 degrees in Victoria and it's 22 degrees in Vancouver. So what that bylaw says is that the landlord has to provide a heating system that keeps the unit um, at a minimum temperature throughout the winter months. You know, as we're seeing the effects of climate change and we're seeing more and more instances of extreme heat, we think that it's time to look at the inverse and look at um, how hot uh, a rental unit can be before you know the landlord is compelled to to put in a system that will bring the heat down in that space. So it's again, it's because it's, it's great that it's a landlord's responsibility. Of course, landlords have many responsibilities. Some might you know um, to to keep your uh, their unit reasonably warm so that you know you don't freeze to death in your home. It's quite it's quite it makes sense. But when we wrote these bylaws, we didn't have a heat dome. We didn't have this sort of. Uh, we hadn't felt, I guess, so acutely the effects of climate change. And so now it's like, well, do we amend these in Vancouver and Victoria? It's already written that we have a minimum. And we were talking during the break that mm-hmm. this doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have to be a 15,000 BTU air conditioner. God, it can no. be things like blackout blinds. Yeah. It can be a fan. It can be something that shows that you're trying to bring the temperature down. No, exactly. And I'm also sort of... Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be exactly. I mean, sometimes well, there's been issues, too, with renters and landlords um, about the landlord doesn't want to put in the air conditioner, but the tenant is baking in the unit. And it's like, well, maybe you should. Um, and it's, you know, what are what it's, it's not the most sustainable solution is to whack in, in, an air conditioning unit in, in your unit. But um, as well, it's it's 
it's all interesting. I'm very fortunate that I have central air in the apartment that I rent. Do you really? I and does do. it cost you a premium to have that? Um, weirdly, not really. Like we were looking at apartments when we got our apartment. We we're looking at ones that were sort of similar, maybe built a year or two um, previously, but still in the similar price points that didn't have air conditioning. Huh. So it's kind of weird that it's not a premium. But yeah, I think one of the big misconceptions and we have the roller air conditioners like we don't mm-hmm. have central like yeah. we actually bring the ones where we can bring oh, yeah. it from bedroom A and take it to bedroom B. Totally. And it adds uh, and this is from last uh, part of me two months ago because we just got our bill. It added about one hundred and forty dollars for the month for the two months. So That's for an extra seven, well, it is. It's an additional expense. So the question becomes who incurs that cost? Now, I will be honest with mm-hmm. you. We blasted that thing pretty much from start to finish. As is your right. So my question to be and I don't know if we'll be able to get this in for this segment is okay so i'm on the hook as a as a landlord for this but now can i say cool i'll bring you no pun intended i'll bring (laughs) this to you but you can only operate it from 6 a.m to 6 p.m and on the rest you're on your own i mean there's a lot of things to get into with this but the question is and i'd love to hear from you guys on the buzz line should a maximum temperature not a minimum, but a maximum temperature now be required in rental homes when it comes to the landlord. 604-331-2899. We're not going to take calls on this one per se, but again, 604-331-2899. Should they put this in? And more so, who should it be on when it comes to the fiscal responsibility? Jerry, thank you for this. I had no idea about thank this you. until <laughs> we crossed fast today. So you've you have enlightened me and you've made my day better for it. Oh, bless you. We're going to keep talking about heat. On the other side of the break, Christy Gordon, Global BC Meteorologist, is going to stop by. She's going to get us updated on this heat wave because we're just dipping our toe into it. It's going to be a heater all week long. So I'm going to talk to Jerry and see if I can hang out with her in her central air conditioning unit over there. (laughs) I'm Rob Fay, and this is the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.